We have seen this repeatedly. When groundbreaking tools are invented, they cannot be put back in the box. It's not as though something like the invention of gunpowder, the internal combustion engine, or the internet can just be halted or uninvented. They're simply way too useful for too many people. Bitcoin could prove to be the same thing. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for stopping into the BCB podcast. This year episode is different than our normal format. Josh is away on vacation, so this is myself, Dan, delivering a solo talk or lecture, if you will. My goal in this segment is to briefly outline why I personally think Bitcoin is important and why I believe it's worth your attention. My goal is to make this accessible for someone, even if they're brand new to Bitcoin. Now, whether you agree or disagree with what I have to say in the next 45 minutes, I hope I'm able to get some ideas churning for you. In the coming weeks, Josh and I will resume our normal format, and we have some topics we are stoked to get into. Now, to get rolling on this episode about the importance of Bitcoin, enjoy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me. This is Dan and Dan only for this episode. My smarter and better half, Josh, is getting some much-needed rest and recuperation in the lovely Hawaii. Hope he and his family are enjoying their time there. So get comfortable. I have a stack of notes in front of me, the title of which is The Importance of Bitcoin. I'm rocking a venti iced coffee from Starbucks, and in the background I have on the Indianapolis 500, which interestingly enough, in second is the 21 car, the Bitcoin car. It was in first earlier in the race. It'll be fun to see what it does. So I would think, yeah, throughout the course of this recording, uh, the price of Bitcoin will probably go up to, I'd say, at least 100000 All right. So the purpose behind this is for me to briefly summarize what Bitcoin is and why it matters. And this is a tall task. I, I've heard Michael Saylor say before, he thinks it takes about 40 hours of research and study for someone to even be able to begin to understand the implications of Bitcoin. And from my own experience, I wholeheartedly agree. So there's no way I'm going to do it full justice. That would take hours on hours. But I am going to, I am going to take this back to the beginning. I'm going to try to define terms such that if you are brand new to Bitcoin, I hope you can follow. If you've been in the space for a while, I hope this can still be helpful. You can take some things from it. As a disclaimer, I'm not here to tell you what Bitcoin will do in decades to come. Uh, rather, my, my intention is to try to explore what Bitcoin might do. Uh, Bitcoin today is trading in the mid-30,000s. In the short term, folks, I have no idea whether the price is going to 10K or 100K. I think it's more likely it's going to 100K, but I'm not, I'm not here to predict short and mid-term price action. I do, however, think there's a possibility, and I'm using the word possibility, not inevitability, that long term, a single Bitcoin could be trading for hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. And if that makes no sense to you, you have no clue how that might occur. 
I'm going to do my best to walk you through how the Bitcoin protocol and network could capture that sort of size market cap. Now, if you're a person who immediately reacts to the word Bitcoin and you think this is complete speculative hogwash with no purpose whatsoever, I implore you, hang tight and keep listening. Does Bitcoin have some of the dumbest idiots the world has ever seen involved who are just looking to get rich quick? Yes, it does. Does Bitcoin have the attention of some of the smartest economists and financial minds in the world? Yes, both of those things are true. If you assume Bitcoin is supported only by ill-informed morons, you are missing an entire side of this digital coin. I'm going to kick it off by going way, way back to some brief comments on the history of our species and the history of money. Let's talk about chimpanzees, folks. It's a good animal. Chimpanzees can cooperate in groups of up to, from what I understand, about 150. But if you threw 24,000 chimpanzees into the United Center, it would be utter chaos. Now look at Homo sapien, on the other hand. We can cooperate at virtually infinite scale. And we cooperate at this scale through sharing ideas, technologies, fictions, modes of cooperation. This is how we're able to cooperate, and it's what sets our species apart. Now, money is just one of these tools. It's one of these technologies. It's, as Yuval Harari, one of my favorite authors, says, it's a fiction that our species invented to cooperate. Now, we've got to realize that, that technologies don't remain stagnant. Technologies change over time, over decades, over centuries, over millennia. And eventually, no matter how good an idea is initially, better ideas will invariably emerge. The technology and tool of money has changed countless times in history. And I'm here to tell you, it will change again. Every single one of us individually has a very limited view of history. Just because in your lifetime, something has remained constant. This does not mean that it's going to stay a perpetual fixture forever. Think about money. Let's, let's look at just some of the ways money has changed over the last several thousand years. Our species was once on a barter system. Then we moved to monies like livestock, shells, salt. We then worked towards precious metals being the base layer of money like silver and gold. Then we got to gold-backed currencies, and now we're to paper currencies backed by nothing, what we now know as the fiat system. Bitcoin is a brand new kid on the block. It is an entirely new kind of money. And there are a lot of folks out there that believe it could be the biggest and baddest of them all. On October 31st, 2008, a pseudonymous individual named Satoshi Nakamoto released a paper, an academic paper. And the title of this paper was Bitcoin, a Peer-to-Peer Electronic Cash System. And in this paper, Satoshi Nakamoto outlined his idea, the code behind a completely decentralized and digital currency. The, the premise of this currency or this monetary technology was that no single entity could control this system. So essentially, Satoshi created a monetary protocol or a money protocol that was built on top of the internet. Now, I'm going to define the word Bitcoin because I think this can be confusing if you're brand new. Bitcoin, really, that word can mean two different things. Bitcoin is both the name of the protocol, the Bitcoin protocol that runs on the internet, and it's also the name of the monetary units within that protocol. So in, in this regard, it's similar to email. 
Email is used to generally and broadly describe a form of messaging technology. For example, does your mom use email? And it's also used as a word to describe specific messages. Did you get my email last Tuesday? Bitcoin's very similar. It describes the protocol and the units within the protocol. So now to, to define and explain what a protocol is. A protocol is essentially a set of rules for moving packets of information digitally across the internet. To put this another way, protocols are essentially instructions that participating devices, i.e. computers, on a network agree to so that they can communicate with one another and, and transfer information between one another. We use protocols all the time, every single day, anytime we're utilizing the internet. Every video you stream, text you send, email you read, tweet you like, this is all working through protocols. Here's a couple examples of, of protocols you're probably familiar with. SMTP, the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. This is a, a communication layer protocol that's used to send emails. HTTPS is another protocol, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol. This is used to send data between websites and web browsers. Okay, then, and the list of protocols could go on and on. Bitcoin is just another protocol running on a network of computers. And these computers on this network, on the Bitcoin network, are called nodes. So just like the SMTP protocol's purpose is email messaging, so its purpose is sending communications across space and time, the Bitcoin protocol's purpose is money used to transfer value across space and time. The Bitcoin protocol is the first of its kind, and it has a ton of characteristics that make it extremely powerful and unique. I, I think... To understand Bitcoin, it's really important to at least have a mild grasp of why it was created. So Satoshi Nakamoto built Bitcoin for a very specific reason. He was trying to fix a problem he saw within existing economic systems. And we know this through reading his writing, his email communications. Within the, the very first block on the Bitcoin blockchain, the Genesis block, he inscribed a message that specifically highlighted European Central Bank bailouts, monetary manipulation, money printing following the Great Recession in 2009. So it's, it's very clear what Satoshi was reacting against. He had a major problem with the current monetary system, the fiat system, and, and how it's running. Now, the word fiat, it means by decree. So essentially, fiat money is money by decree or money controlled by the government. Today's governments, if you're not aware, mold the foundations of money through central banking and, and other tools like fiscal and monetary policy. And you got to realize that the degree of government control over money that we see today is a fairly new phenomenon. I mean, look at the United States in particular. The, the central bank of the United States, the way we know it today, only dates back to 1913. And a lot of its power was curtailed, at least to some extent, up until 1971 when we came off the gold standard. Nixon took us off the gold standard. So the, the experiment we're running, this fiat system that we're trying right now, only dates back 50 years. And what's interesting is that many, if not most, of the founding fathers of the United States of America, people like Thomas Jefferson, they detested the idea of central banking. They thought it gave way too much power to governments. And so it's no coincidence that this country was not founded with a central bank. That came later. We live in a fiat system where central banks and governments control both the supply of money, so the number of units that exist in the economy, as well as the price of money. 
Price of money being the interest rates that are applied at the base layer. There is a massive, I mean massive amount of money manipulation and printing taking place in the 21st century, particularly over the last 12 to 13 years. The M2 money supply is an important metric to track. It essentially measures the amount of dollars in circulation or checkable deposits that are available. And the M2 money supply went up 20% last year, 2020 alone. It's not all stimulus checks, if you're not aware of how these systems work. Stimulus checks are just a fraction or a component of this money insertion. The government uses a host of other tools to expand money supply, things like quantitative easing. If you're curious, go look up that term and, and dig into it. The M2 money supply today is sitting just over $20 trillion. In 2017, just a few years ago, the M2 money supply was at $13 trillion. And in addition to just printing, the central bank uses other tools to manipulate interest rates to keep lending rates and interest rates artificially low. Interest rates have been on a steady decline. They've been lowering for about 40 years if you zoom out on the chart. And we could spend hours covering kind of how and why they do these activities. But the point I'm hammering home here is that sovereign nation states, governments today do a lot of money manipulating. Now, governments obviously purport to do this for good reason, and a lot of the projects they're working on and the reasons they're doing this are, are out of good intention. Most of the time, they're printing money or manipulating money to avoid short-term economic pain. There's a lot of people that don't see a problem with the current fiat system. They don't see an issue with governments controlling the foundation of the monetary system. If you're a modern monetary theorist, you don't have a problem with this. This fits right into your playbook. But there are an increasing number of individuals in the world today that view this money manipulation as an issue. Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, was one of those people. Allow me to highlight just a few reasons why some folks would take issue with the fiat monetary system with all this manipulation. I'm going to brush over four reasons rather quickly. The first reason I have is that this system allows for never-ending government spending. So since the government controls the money printer, they simply don't have to balance budgets, but rather they can just keep racking up endless debt by printing more money, and they can fund essentially any social program in war they want because of this money printing. They don't have to procure funds through taxation. They can just create money out of thin air. Debt versus GDP, or debt over GDP, is an important metric for assessing where the government is going with spending. This was at 30% in the 1970s. Today, global debt to GDP is 130%, and it shows absolutely no signs of abatement. The government has grown steadily larger and larger without having to actually procure more money by taxing citizens or issuing legitimate bonds that capture existing money in the system. They can just print it. And as a side note, interest rates are low and need to stay low so that the government continues to be able to afford this debt. But I digress. Second reason I have on here is inflation. Every single new unit of printed money decreases the value of existing units. And this is a shadow tax on the citizenry of a country. This is called the monetization of debt. Inflation can be directly equated to legalized counterfeiting by the government. Every single dollar in your hands when they print another dollar bill is devalued and debased. With the amount of money 
that has been printed since the Great Recession over the last 12, 13 years, I assure you that in my lifetime, things will and have gotten more and more expensive. Number three, the amount of monetary manipulation and money insertion that's transpiring today creates a system riddled with debt. There is more debt in the world today than there ever has been before. A word used to describe this is over-leveraged. The system is over-leveraged. And the problem with a system that's over-leveraged is that when you create these artificially high levels of debt, the economy becomes inherently and mathematically fragile and vulnerable to collapse and to abrupt issues. In a lot of ways, the policies that are going on from central banks are placing band-aids on larger problems, kicking the can down the road. A lot of these techniques encumber free markets and the free market's ability to, to essentially weed out bad ideas, to adapt, to recover, and then grow appropriately. I mean, in my life, I've seen bailouts of full-blown industries by the central government. And the overarching concern here is that short-term economic fixes, like printing money and reducing interest rates, these are going to lead or have the potential to lead to large collapses and big-time pain at some future date. You know, a, a common phrase in economics is there's no free lunch. And when they're creating this money out of thin air, they're not intrinsically creating value. Debt cannot go up forever. That stat I provided earlier, we went from 30% of debt to GDP. We're at 130% on that ratio. This, this has to stop at some point. And if it's not curtailed, there could be some serious issues. We saw the beginning of the system deleveraging back in the recession. The government proceeded to put a massive Band-Aid on that, and similar incidents could occur without the ability to fix them or put them back in the box. The fourth reason I have down here for why people would take issue with the current fiat system is that it has a propensity to widen the wealth gap. So as money gets inserted, artificially inserted in the economy, it, it often finds its way into assets, real estate, stocks, etc. And the people that hold the assets in the largest quantities are wealthy individuals. So in a lot of ways, they benefit from the bubbles and price increases that happen from money insertion. And those that are lower on the socioeconomic scale generally have fewer assets, and they reap less of the benefit when this money gets inserted. The rich get richer, the poor get poor. And all the metrics over the last 20 to 30 years are showing that this is transpiring in the United States. I think a lot of this goes back to the amount of money insertion. So these are just four quick reasons. There's plenty more. And each of the issues I just cited, each of the four, they're complex, they're nuanced. People would have fair counter arguments for what I just threw out there on some of these fronts and rebuttals. But here's the point I'm trying to make, is that whether you personally agree or disagree with how the current system works, there are a lot of people who have a problem with the system. Some folks benefit from the way things are running currently, and some don't. And there is an increased clamoring for a more fair, more equitable economic system that can create more stability and has less manipulation. A lot of folks are hungry for a new monetary order. At its core, the Bitcoin protocol was created to meet this demand and completely change how the fiat system operates. Now, Satoshi's invention of Bitcoin was a momentous leap forward in monetary technology and in computer science. So like a lot of, of paradigm-shifting technologies that have had huge impacts 
on human organization. I'm thinking about things like gunpowder, the printing press, internal combustion engines, the internet itself. The invention of Bitcoin was an amalgamation of a lot of different ideas and inventions that had been worked on for decades by a lot of different people. The Bitcoin protocol combines projects like proof-of-work, one-way hashes, uh, public-private key cryptography, and it adds ingredients like blockchain to solidify a, a truly groundbreaking move in how value can be transferred across the internet. For the first time in history, Satoshi Nakamoto discovered true digital scarcity. So prior to the Bitcoin blockchain, digital scarcity was a problem that had not been solved. So if I sent you a picture, a movie, or an email, a photo, something like that on the internet, that digital item could theoretically be copied endlessly. Bitcoin is the first time in history we have a true digitally scarce item that cannot be copied, replicated, or counterfeit. The Bitcoin protocol creates a form of money, the units, the Bitcoins, that are completely and programmably scarce. This type of money is mathematically and cryptographically immune to any sort of tampering by any sort of person. Now, to quickly define the word scarcity, scarcity refers to something that is in short supply. And, and history shows us that scarcity is the most important characteristic of money or a good or something that stores value. Every single person that participates in a monetary system or a monetary network has an incentive to produce more units. If money exists and we could all create it, we'd be doing it all the time. So if this is easy to do, if money is easy to inflate or create, the medium of exchange becomes totally worthless. Bitcoin really is a King Kong in the sphere of scarcity. There are currently around 19 million, just less than 19 million Bitcoin. And by the year 2140, there will only ever be 21 million. No more, no less. So currently, gold is on parity with Bitcoin in terms of its scarcity. These are, these are tied for the scarcest asset on planet Earth. But by the year 2025, when Bitcoin goes through what's called its next halving cycle, and we have a scarcity shock where supply diminishes, Bitcoin will be the scarcest asset in the world the most inflation-resistant form of money our species has ever seen. And what's remarkable is there's no person, influencer, organization, government that can change the issuance schedule. Nobody can simply decide to create more units like the government is doing with, say, U.S. dollars and fiat money. Now, the importance of this discovery cannot be overstated, folks. Bitcoin accomplishes this perfect degree of digital scarcity through a number of means, but one key aspect you need to understand is that Bitcoin is a decentralized network. Now, decentralized is a word you're going to hear a lot in this space. Prior to the invention of Bitcoin, to get back to the discovery of digital scarcity, intermediaries were required to delineate who had control of what good on the internet. You needed a third party to make these decisions and, and call the rules. So, for example, Facebook controls who has what profile. Spotify labels songs and sends revenues to their specific music artist. Banks sort out who has what money. We need an intermediary. We need a third party to help decide who has what. But the Bitcoin protocol creates a form of digital money that can be completely trusted and transferred between two people, between you and I, without anybody in the middle, with no intermediary. So in this way, Bitcoin is what's called a peer-to-peer -peer network. Peer-to-peer is another key phrase in Bitcoin. 
So let me let me just give a practical example of this. There's many of them. But if I were to live in the United States and I wanted to send money back to my mother in, say, Mexico, I can do this on the Bitcoin network without using any intermediaries, like, say, Western Union, who, by the way, rips people off 20% to send payments overseas. I can do this between me and my mother. And I can do this between me and somebody else that I detest, hate, and don't trust whatsoever. And we can totally rely on this network between the two of us. And there's no person in control of that network. This is what Bitcoin is up to. This is what it's doing. To hammer this home, to bring this back and summarize it, no person, no group, no government, no matter how powerful they are, can control the Bitcoin protocol because of its decentralized peer-to-peer architecture. The ledger of Bitcoin cannot be manipulated. It cannot be altered. It cannot be controlled. Now, to briefly define what I mean by ledger, all money networks, all systems are essentially ledgers. Think of a ledger like a, a book of financial accounts. So the US dollar system is essentially one giant ledger. Stacy has $42,000. John has $1 million US dollars. It's just an accounting of who own, owns what. That's the ledger, the US dollar ledger. Bitcoin's the same. It runs a ledger that reflects who has how much Bitcoin and, and what value each participant possesses. And this ledger is stored on the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, at this point, you may be asking or wondering, how is it that Bitcoin accomplishes this? Like, how is it that the Bitcoin protocol can't be manipulated or controlled? And to answer that question, I'll say that what makes Bitcoin's ledger unique is that it's housed on hundreds of thousands of computers all over the world called nodes. Now, I run a node. Josh runs a node. If you get super into Bitcoin, you need to run a node. I run a small computer on a Raspberry Pi that just verifies the Bitcoin ledger. Each of these nodes independently reach consensus every 10 minutes. So on their own, they go about making sure that the ledger, the blockchain is accurate and that the accounting is correct of who has how much Bitcoin. And then this is recorded into the blockchain. So to alter the Bitcoin ledger, you would need to hack hundreds of thousands of computers all at the same time, all in different locations. And this is what makes Bitcoin's ledger unchangeable, or you could say immutable, impossible to alter or hack. Much like the Bible, Bitcoin is everywhere and yet nowhere at the same time. Like, how would you go about changing, the, let's say, the gospel of Mark? There are endless copies of the Bible. Even if you got your hands on 10,000 Bibles and you made a change to the gospel of Mark, you'd, you'd basically make no dent in changing the Bible. It's everywhere and it's nowhere. And Bitcoin operates the same way. It's, it has spread its ledger so far and wide that there is no central point of attack. Here's the real takeaway from a lot of what I've spent some time explaining. Bitcoin is a hard and fast set of rules for money without any ruler. It's a protocol that has the potential to create and is already in many circumstances creating the ultimate fair playing field for money. It is a, a tool that creates a degree of, of transparency and trust we have never before seen in a money system. I mean, I can hop on my node right now. I could go upstairs into my living room and I could audit the ledger and see exactly how many Bitcoins there are, which wallets have what. I can confirm on my own, through my own computer, whether what's going on is accurate or not. And I can be assured of its accuracy by mathematics and cryptography. Anyone can run one of these computers. It's absolutely remarkable. Think of, think of the world today as a game of Monopoly 
where in this fiat system, the banker can create as much money as they want out of thin air. The, the technology underpinning Bitcoin has the potential to ensure that every single participant in the game of Monopoly is playing by the same set of rules. Another way to describe Bitcoin is that it creates a totally free market for money. In the current system, we have what I would describe as an inherently socialist institution, the central bank, at the center of what we call capitalism. A guy named Robert Breedlove does a very good job enumerating this theme. The central bank is controlling the most important market in the world. That's the market for money. Money's on one side of every single transaction that ever happens. And Bitcoin shows signs of being able to disrupt that monopoly. Are you curious or aware of the fact that the Chinese government, the CCP, has continually tried to subdue Bitcoin? They're doing it right now. They're trying to inhibit what's called Bitcoin mining. And they're doing this because they see it as a huge threat to their ability to monopolize and control the money that their citizens hold. I'm telling you, autocratic governments, they may get interested in Bitcoin in the short term just because it's shiny and it's going up massively in price. So they see it as an opportunity to generate wealth. But long term, folks, as more and more of the citizens in these autocratic regimes start utilizing this protocol, the leaders in these areas are going to recognize that Bitcoin is ruthless and unstoppable free market dynamics. And that is a massive threat to their control and power because it's a type of money that can't be censored, manipulated, or commandeered. In general, when it comes to Bitcoin, if you're a powerful player, you're a big company, you're a government, whatever, you have, you have two options. You can either resist and try to subdue the Bitcoin network and protocol or you can participate. You cannot manipulate. You cannot alter what's happening with this technology because of the way it's designed. And what I find interesting is that when you look at the last 100 years, we've seen repeatedly that free markets generally outcompete markets that are controlled. Let's look at the example of the United States versus the Soviet Union. The U.S. economy grew much, much, much larger than the Soviet Union, in large part because of its capitalist free market architecture, as opposed to the Soviet Union's architecture of complete centralized control. Another example I could provide here is if you were to have two groups of 100 people, let's say, and you asked those groups to solve a super complicated problem, and you asked one of the groups, one of the groups of 100 has to rely totally on one central decision maker who's telling everybody else what to do. And the other group can do whatever the hell they want. Everybody can participate. I guarantee you that nine times out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, that second group where the creative juices are flowing out of every single one of those 100 people is going to outcompete the first group in finding that solution. And this principle, this idea that, that free markets generally outcompete controlled markets, I think very well could play out in Bitcoin versus what we talk about as the capitalist structure today. Bitcoin is a freer market, and it may continue to outcompete the centrally planned manipulation going on in central banking and fiat money. Here's what's even more scary, is that in addition to Bitcoin's tremendous scarcity and decentralized makeup, which I've spent some time covering, Bitcoin also has a host of other characteristics that make it superior monetary technology. I'll name a few. Bitcoin is infinitely divisible and it is endlessly scalable. It can be used to accommodate economies of any size, any scale. Bitcoin is the most portable money the world has ever seen. Tokens can be transferred across the internet 
instantaneously at light speed, just like email. Along this vein, Bitcoins can be custodied, stored, traded with the utmost security, reliability, anonymity. They're incredibly censorship resistant, hard to find if you know how to store them. Bitcoin is totally permissionless. Anyone on the internet, any person can buy, store, transfer Bitcoin. You do not have to have a bank account. You do not need approval. If you live in the US, this probably doesn't mean anything to you. But if you're one of the 1.7 billion people on the earth that have no access to a bank account, you may never need to. All you may need is a smartphone and access to the internet. Bitcoin is open source and programmable, meaning that new applications can be built on top of its base layer, such that future monetary tasks and ideas can be accommodated way into the future without compromising any of its core tenets of, of scarcity and accuracy of the ledger. It's, it's an endlessly adaptable technology for applications and ideas people haven't even thought up today in the year 2021. In this way, it's very similar to the internet itself. The internet dates back all the way to, to the 1970s. And believe me, in the 1970s, nobody dreamed that we would be streaming HD video. But here we are today. I'm watching the Indy 500 in front of me stream through the internet on YouTube TV. Ideas and technologies for money that do not exist today can be run and built on top of the Bitcoin protocol. This is the beauty of an open source project like Bitcoin. I could keep going for a lot longer about the special properties of Bitcoin, but suffice it to say that in many regards, Bitcoin embodies the, the best, the fairest, the most useful, the most trustworthy, the most revolutionary characteristics for money we have ever seen before. To demonstrate this further, I'm going to jump back into monetary history briefly. And I'm going to talk about gold. In a lot of people's mind, gold is the fairest and many would argue best kind of money our species has ever known. It, it was repeatedly selected over thousands of years and its value has stood the test of time. Gold was selected on the free market for two main reasons. First, because of its profound scarcity. And secondly, because it's tremendously durable. But gold has flaws. It has flaws of divisibility, right? You can't go buy a screwdriver with gold. You'd be transacting in gold dust. Portability, it's heavy, it's difficult to move, it's expensive to move. And recognizability, you have to have somebody assay and weigh gold every time it's transacted. These are weaknesses of gold. And these weaknesses eventually led to the centralization of gold in the hands of governments. They were able to commandeer gold in large part because of some of these weaknesses. The centralization of gold coupled with the growing size and scope of the economy and increased velocity of money eventually led us to paperback currencies and the fiat system we have right now. But what Satoshi did, his purpose was to design a protocol, that being Bitcoin, in such a way that it can take gold's strengths of scarcity and durability, while at the same time fixing, and I would argue in some cases perfecting, its flaws, its flaws of divisibility, portability, recognizability, censorship resistance, self-custody. I'm brushing over these quickly. But in essence, in essence, Bitcoin harnesses the best of gold, which I've argued is the fairest and best money our species has ever had, and it ups the ante even further. And for this reason and a lot of reasons I've mentioned, Bitcoin should at the very least be something that catches your attention. Bitcoin has a lot of characteristics, some of which I've identified here, that indicate it could be a superior form of money than what we're using today. 
And be careful because history shows us clearly that better technologies generally always win out and proliferate. We have seen this repeatedly. When groundbreaking tools are invented, they cannot be put back in the box. It's not as though something like the invention of gunpowder, the internal combustion engine, or the internet can just be halted or uninvented. They're simply way too useful for too many people. Bitcoin could prove to be the same thing. An investment in Bitcoin is essentially an investment in its future potential as a revolutionary tool and technology for mankind. Now, one thing I've noticed having been around Bitcoin for a number of years is that some people dismiss it because they fundamentally misunderstand the problems Bitcoin's trying to solve in the current economy. At this point in time, in the year 2021, Bitcoin is not trying to be the next Visa. It's not trying to be the next MasterCard or Venmo. Now, it, it one day may usurp all these platforms or all these platforms may be using the underlying Bitcoin protocol. But what I'm talking about here, these are financial technologies built on top of lower scaffolding or lower structures in the financial system. And, and this is where Bitcoin gets confused as a currency. It's, it's not trying to function at the top layer of money. A lot of people think that you know, since you can't transact with Bitcoin at, the, say, the grocery store, that means it's worthless. Remember, there, there's a lot of massive financial instruments and assets that you can't use to buy a latte. That doesn't mean they don't have massive market cap. Think about real estate, precious metals, stocks. So Bitcoin is making a move to be a base layer form of money. It's vying to be an incorruptible foundational tool and store of value. Now, let me explain. I've used the word layer here a few times. Let me explain what I mean by this as it pertains to money. Our current monetary system has, has many different layers, and I'll dumb this down to just three as an example. So let's say at the base layer, and this is the base layer of the current system, you have U.S. dollars, usually in the form of, of U.S. treasuries. Above that, let's say you have bank accounts, and then above that, you have something like a credit card. Now, there's more things in between, but for, for simplicity's sake, that'll work. Years ago, gold used to be the base layer form of money. This is what we used to call the gold standard. And in summary, in this gold standard, gold served as a peg or a form of accountability at the foundation of the world's monetary or economic systems. Governments couldn't just create gold out of thin air. Alchemy is not, not a viable thing. So this meant that there was a source of accountability for their money printing. They couldn't just print endlessly and manipulate monetary systems without consequence as they think they can do today. But gold has shortcomings, and I, and I highlighted some of these shortcomings earlier. And these shortcomings caused this system to fall apart. And now we're in this fiat system where we're pegged to absolutely nothing. We officially came off the gold standard, as I mentioned at the top, in 1971. The Bitcoin protocol has properties that give it the potential to reinstate a fair, incorruptible base layer for money, much like gold used to be. And this, this base layer store of value idea for Bitcoin, this gold 2.0 sort of narrative, is the primary narrative underpinning Bitcoin's valuation and, and price moves today. But this use case could broaden significantly in years and decades in the future. Think about the internet itself. The internet took hold and gained entrenchment through the email application. And once Everybody had the internet because they needed email. It then proceeded to eat freaking everything from video to dating to music to, to pornography. 
Bitcoin is becoming entrenched as a store of value asset, like gold. But if it continues to accomplish that and it reaches gold, gold's market cap and start, starts accomplishing some of the things gold's up to today, it could eat parts of many other asset classes and money applications. So in summary here, Bitcoin is vying to be a, a sort of base layer foundation for money. But because it's programmable, open source, adaptable, digital, like the internet itself, it could eventually work its way into these layers above that base layer. If you're curious about what these layers might look like, I encourage you to look into something called the Lightning Network. So you may be sitting there and you might still be asking and thinking, why does this matter? I'm perfectly fine with the existing system. But remember, just because this system works for you in the wealthiest country in the world does not mean it works for everyone. Many people around the globe see a need for a base layer kind of money that ne- that's removed from human control, human manipulation, removed from government officials. They want a fair playing field for money. In the future, our species is going to hand the reins over to computer algorithms across virtually every sphere, from healthcare to self-driving cars, etc. Why would we then trust the Federal Reserve and bankers to control the most important market in the world? the market for money. If there's any market that's prone to manipulation, it's the market for money. Lots of 21st century human beings are, are clamoring for a money that is harder, sounder, more fair, that, that can't be changed, that can't be manipulated, that can't be inflated. Here, here are some examples I'm going to give you of the types of people that might be hungry for a form of money with a hard and fast issuance schedule that cannot be manipulated. If you live in Nigeria and you have no access to a bank account, you have no access to retirement accounts, you can't get your hands on blue chip stocks, there's no way for you to store and transfer wealth, but you have a smartphone and access to the internet, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you live in Venezuela, where the government has been overprinting money to the point where everything around you gets double digits of a percent more expensive each and every month, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you're someone that's living on a fixed income or a pension, and you're noticing that life around you is getting pricier and pricier, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you live on a modest income and that dream home you've always wanted is getting further and further out of reach, more and more expensive, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you run a company and you're finding that over time you need to take significantly more risk and you need to take on more debt just to stay competitive, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you live in China and your government is censoring all your transactions and you're noticing they're trying to control when, where, how you spend your yuan, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you're someone that's tired of the government being able to fund any and every project they deem appropriate by just printing more US dollars out of thin air, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you're someone that thinks the government's gotten too large, you might be interested in Bitcoin. If you've been sitting around for 12 years watching Bitcoin rattle off 200% annualized returns because the people I've mentioned above have been buying Bitcoin and you want a piece of this upside, you might be interested in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is more than just an idea. It's working currently. It's still young. It's still new. But the past 12 years have shown us that this invention, Satoshi's creation, what he discovered, it has not gone unnoticed. This groundbreaking discovery 
has been identified and valued by market participants. Bitcoin is by far the best performing asset over the last 12 years. Nothing comes close. And it's done so with zero marketing team, no company heading it up, no board of directors, and all the while attacks and false narratives bombarding it from every side. If you invested $100 in Bitcoin 10 years ago, that would be worth $9 million today. Bitcoin is the fastest asset in history to reach $1 trillion. Now, we're under a trillion right now, but we hit it earlier this year. And it's reached this $1 trillion mark twice as fast as any other asset in human history. So what are my suggestions? What are some thoughts I have on how you should approach Bitcoin? First off, keep your eyes open. Pay attention. Bitcoin, it, it may not be for you. You may not agree about its use case. You may choose not to invest. But whether you like Bitcoin or not, please recognize it's not a joke. Bitcoin is not GameStop 2.0. It's not Dogecoin. It's not craps at the casino. Bitcoin is dead freaking serious. It is groundbreaking technology. And it is something that has garnered the interest of some of the smartest people in the world. From investors like Ray Dalio, Stan Druckenmiller, uh, to S&P 500 companies like Mass Mutual, MicroStrategy, Tesla, Cash App, Square, all the way to U.S. senators and congressmen, other government officials like the governor of Wyoming and the mayor of uh, Miami. The list could go on a lot longer. Yes, like any new and important arena where money is flying around, there are a ton of idiots involved who have no clue what they're investing in. Bitcoin has a ton of hollow hype going on. I'll be the first to admit that. But it also has a very strong foundation of investors that use it, that understand it, and that think it has tremendous potential and value. A metaphor I like to, to draw for Bitcoin is it's like concrete topped with styrofoam. There's a lot of flimsiness on top of some serious bedrock. But overarchingly, for the last 12 years, the network continues to grow. More and more people are using this protocol, participating in this network, and it shows no signs of slowing down. More and more people are finding this protocol useful for storing their hard work and transferring value. With this in mind, recall that Bitcoin's supply is totally fixed and, as we would say, completely inelastic. It's programmatically set. It's the scarcest good on earth. So therefore, if demand in the Bitcoin protocol and network continues to grow, if more and more people continue to find this useful, the price is going to go up with it. And I'm here to tell you, a single Bitcoin could, in the future, reach valuations that will blow minds. Bitcoin is currently sitting just below a trillion dollar market cap. And we're in the process, we're in that gold 2.0 narrative phase where we're making a play at gold's market cap, which currently sits around $10 trillion. But Bitcoin serves a lot of other purposes and can be applied to a lot of other regions of the economy and finance. And so I personally am not going to be surprised if it siphons off part of a whole host of other asset classes. Let's think about some of these numbers. Bitcoin's sitting below a trillion dollars. Gold's market cap is $10 trillion. The stock market is $100 trillion. Real estate is $225 trillion. The bond market is $250 trillion. 
The art and collectibles market is $20 trillion. Offshore banking, some estimate, is upwards of $30 trillion. I don't know what that total is, but it's hundreds and hundreds of trillion. And even if Bitcoin were to take a small bite at that apple, as it already has and will likely continue to do, its market cap could reach some fairly large figures. Bitcoin is nascent, it's new, and it absolutely could fail. And as investors, we have to play both sides. We have to be ready for all scenarios. Please, please do not put all your eggs in this basket. I have not, and I would not recommend anyone do this. Follow multiple strategies. Make sure your position sizes are such that you are comfortable. You can sleep at night. Make sure you don't invest any more than you understand. But start paying attention. Start learning. Because it is possible that a good number of folks who today fail to learn about this protocol and dismiss it as as totally stupid will sound as anachronistic and dumb as Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman, who said in 1998, by 2005 or so, it will become clear that the internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than that of fax machines. Thank you for listening. If you're brand new, a lot of this may have been confusing. I went over a lot of this very quickly. If I did spark some curiosity, go learn, go read, go study, because I firmly believe Bitcoin is a special technology and it is well worth your time. Have a great rest of your day, a great rest of your week. And with everything in life, Bitcoin included, don't trust, verify. Take care. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have time, leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.